Continental was founded in 1871, and its corporate structure hasn't changed much since then. Now it's reinventing itself to deal with an industry that's quickly moving into electrification, autonomy, and connectivity. On this week's show, Jeff Cly, president of Continental North America, talks about how and why the company is changing. Underwriting for the production of AutoLine this week has been provided by RSM. Prepare for challenges specific to your business by working with trusted advisors who help turn obstacles into opportunities. Experience the power of being understood. RSM, audit, tax, and consulting for the middle market. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. Thank you for joining us on AutoLine this week. On today's show, we're going to be talking all about the supplier industry, or more specifically, about continental automotive systems. And that's because our special guest for today's show is Jeff Cly. He's the president of North American Operations for Continental. And Jeff, always good to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Also joining us for today's journalist panel are Lindsey Brook from SAE Engineering and Drew Winter from Wards. And great to have the both of you. Good guys. to be here, Jan. Jeff, I know uh, Continental's kind of into a quiet period now. You guys are doing an IPO, kind of a semi-spinoff of your powertrain operations. Other things going on? What can you tell us? I know you got to be quiet because of regulations on this, but what's going on at the company? So about a year ago, we announced a realignment of our company, and that really is kind of two phases. One is exactly what you said. We're taking our powertrain operations, which is roughly 20% of the company, and we're carving it out and preparing for an IPO. And our IPO is different than some of the other IPOs that you've seen. We will maintain majority share. We're targeting somewhere in the 25% that we're going to float to the market, and we will still have majority share. So we will still have control. It'll still be part of the Continental Group company. It will have a different branding that uh, is being developed. The rest of the company is also then being realigned into two main new, what I'll call divisions or business areas. One is vehicle networking and information. The other one is autonomous mobility and safety. Those are similar to the divisions we have today but is really the focus on automotive. And then, of course, rubber, which has always been a big part of our company, will your, still your be. Your tires. Yes, exactly. So you're changing the company's structure because the, the whole industry is changing? We, really, what, what we have seen is if you look at Continental as a company, you know, we were founded in 1871, and really for the first you know, 130 years or so, it was strictly a rubber company, tires and other rubber-related products. In 19, 1998, we started transition into other automotive with the acquisition of Tevis, and then it was Temec in 2001, Siemens VDO, and Motorola in, in 2006, 2007, and 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 you guys have seen us grow. But if you look at the company structure, since really 2006, we've maintained the basic same company structure. And that was when we were roughly half the sales that we are today. Right, So we're a $50 billion company today, and it's time to take a step back and say, are we really structured and focused in the right areas? So that's, it's really about you know, the powertrain carve-out and then kind of realigning the rest of the company. And powertrain carve-out, Jeff, that includes electrification, right? Absolutely. That's just not traditional combustion engine it's, powertrain. It's all the powertrain, including all of our hybrid, uh, exactly, all the 48-volt, all the battery electronics, all the battery management, all the internal combustion, all the pump, uh, hmm. all of our powertrain business today 
which is around nine to nine and a half billion uh, dollars in sales, mm -hmm. will be carved out and is carved out, and we'll have an IPO sometime early next year. So we were talking earlier. I mean, I, I, it's got to be really tough to be in your position where um, uh, on the one hand, you have Wall Street and a lot of um, um, analysts forecasting this massive move to electrification and autonomous cars. And then there's the reality of getting consumers on board. And I mean, all these all these things to make that happen. It's very uncertain. I mean, how do you how do you budget or how do you plan for something that, you know, maybe there's a lot of, a lot of revenue coming, but you just don't know when it's, it's going to happen. That's really the story behind electrification, but it's not a different story than what was behind all of our radar technologies and much of our automated driving technologies. You invest, you invest, invest for many, many years with an uncertain future. And finally, the market realizes it, the market sees the benefit, and the market starts to take off. And we're now seeing that with all of those other technologies. Electrification is one that there's so many different variations of electrification. It's a very uncertain market. A lot of it has to do with fuel prices, which, as you know, are relatively low. And unless something happens in, in, um, in Iran, will remain relatively low. So there's a, a cost-benefit analysis that consumers are doing, and they're saying, I'm just not prepared for it. Now, regulations in certain parts of the world are changing that. China, for sure. Europe, for sure. Um, the U.S. is not quite as aggressive, even with the new fuel economy standards. You know, it's not demanding as much electrification maybe as what it might be in the rest of the world. So clearly we're working on it, we're focused on it, and it will require tremendous investment before we really start to see a huge return like we have seen in other parts of the business. How difficult is it to manage this? You've got disruption on one side. I'm not sure whether innovation is driving the disruption or this regulatory environment or the, as Drew said, you know, consumer uncertainty for some of these technologies. But some companies we've seen have reorganized. That's been their solution. Every two years you reorganize and nothing gets done. How do you manage this, Jim? You know, that's why when you look at what we're we're calling it a realignment because it's not really reorganization. Re reorganization means we're going we're gonna to cut to profitability. That's right. not our strategy, right. right? We're still investing heavily, but what we want to do is allow more agility, more focus, and more you know, independence for this group to go off and do the things that they need to do mm -hmm. with heavy still influence from Continental. But as a Continental group now, we're going to let them be a little bit more independent, maybe move a little bit faster. And that's one of the things. It is in a disruptive industry, mm -hmm. both in the autonomous driving, but also clearly in this powertrain area. It's very disruptive. And they need some more flexibility and agility to go off and do some of the things that they want to do. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's not easy, but we're managing it, I, I think, very, very well. And that's one of the main focuses for giving this IPO and carving it out. Is it, I got to believe that you're working with a number of these startups, electric vehicle startups and the like, and they operate at a different clock speed. They go far, far faster than traditional automakers. What has Continental as a supplier to the, I'm assuming that you do supply them. What have you learned from them? You know, are, you, are there practices that you can apply, or is it, wow, these guys don't know what they're doing? Well, it, there's a little of both. There's some where we'd say, it's they're moving a little bit too fast. You know, and, and you've got to remember the technologies that we're involved in are safety, right? For the majority, we're a safety company. So you can't cut too many corners. You still have to do the right development. You still have to do the right testing. So there's some that move a little bit too fast for our comfort, and we're finding ways through that with them. But we're never, in, in many cases, we're not moving as fast as what they would like, but, we, but they begin to realize that we can't move as fast as maybe we want. So there's a balance. But we've also taken a step back and learned a little bit about how we can move faster, just like the other OEMs. I mean, look at, look at you know, GM with cruise automation. 
right? They're still in California. They're still run somewhat independent, and they're there for a reason, because they want to allow them to have a little bit more flexibility, a little bit more agility, and maybe to move it at a little bit different clock speed, to your, to your point. And so we're trying to do that, and our customers are as well. But it's clearly pushed us as an industry, and I think it's been great. Well, I, I know Lindsay and I both recently drove a, um, a, a demo car from a startup that was using your new electric axle. Mm -hmm. And the car was, I mean, crowdfunded car. Um, and it was a little rough on the outside. But, boy, the powertrain was, and which is probably the hardest part, it was good. Yeah. I mean, it... it and it so included solar panels on the on every surface, yeah. vertical surfaces, horizontal surfaces. And the electric axle is just one example, right? But, you know, electrification, it's very expensive. But if you look at it, it's not as complicated as many of the internal combustion with all the different axles. And it's, I, I won't say it's simple by any means. Yeah. But there's a lot of opportunity to make big improvements in the performance of the vehicle with electrification. 48 volt is another big example. And I think you guys mm -hmm. also are, yeah. are experiencing that. It's fantastic, you know. So how about, I mean, it seems in Europe, 48-volt systems are, you know, are strong. In the U.S., it seems to be that they, they haven't caught on quite as much. A little bit now with, with, with uh, um, FCA, with, with uh, um, some of the work they're doing in the pickup trucks. But So you see that, the, where does this go? I mean, it used to be just a stop-start system. Yeah, I mean, 48-volt to us is the right way to get the boost that you need, and that's what, exactly what FCA is doing, both yeah. in the Dodge Ram and the Wrangler, which were a supplier on, on the engines in those, not every engine, but one of the, the big ones. And it's a, it's a great way to get that e-boost, to get the torque that you need off the line with a downsizing engine. It provides great opportunity for fuel efficiency, something in the range of 7 to 14% improvement in fuel efficiency, depending on how it's, it's implemented and integrated in. But to Drew's point, uh, it's been quite successful in Europe. FCA is the only one that's adopted that technology in the North American market. Do you think others will? I think they will, um, but FCA is clearly in a leadership position there. And everyone is kind of stepping back, and you're right, I think Europe has taken the lead in it. Everyone is trying to figure out, do I need to do it? And I think that's really the reality is in this market, the fuel economy requirements are not as strict maybe as some of the other countries, and they feel like they have other ways to achieve it that might be lower cost than putting in 48 volt. It's, it's an economic equation for them. It and really is. Then how tough is cost from a supplier perspective in some of this? Because you can't go into, many people don't go into a dealership and say, I want this safety technology. They expect it. Yeah, and that's a great example of where, you know, it is in many cases an option. It's standard on maybe the high-end trim or it might be packaged. But if it's a standalone option, the consumers don't fully understand the benefit or if it's not sold appropriately or, yeah. we, as we talked many times in the past, the, na the, the naming of these technologies is confusing to the consumer. And that's why I think we're starting to see traction behind, you know, what, what I would say is kind of the, the core five um, technologies with, you know, that are already available, lane departure warning, lane keep assist, automatic emergency braking, forward collision warning, and blind spot detection. Those five alone, if installed as standard equipment on vehicles, can prevent 29% of the fatalities. That's 12,000 lives a year. And that's, that's you know, outside data um, through the Insurance Institute. So it, there's huge benefits, but when you only see 10 or 15 or 20% or maybe as much as 30% installation, the consumers haven't experienced it enough. And quite frankly, they're a little afraid of it. Jeff, Continental has launched a safety campaign to uh, educate consumers on these technologies and the benefits. 
I, I can't remember uh, an automotive supplier doing a marketing campaign on automotive technology to consumers. I mean, this is the job that the car company should be doing. Why is Conti doing it? Um, quite frankly, because we haven't seen it done well enough in the industry. Our customers are not doing it enough, in our opinion. They're talking about it. But the problem is all the naming of these technologies is confusing. And what we want to talk about is the safety benefits. And we, the, the program is called Safely There. And it's a relatively new program. But it's not just putting numbers out. It's pulling a little bit on the emotion strings of people. I'll give you an example. There's a persona that we created with a father and, and his son, right? And they're driving down the road. And the vehicle, of course, is equipped with all the, the latest advanced safety technologies. And what the father realizes is that, you know, I'm there while this 16-year-old is training in the car, but there's a day when I'm not going to be there is that second set of eyes. And the sensors on the vehicle will be that second set of eyes. So it's a little bit more emotion. It doesn't talk about how many lives can be saved. It doesn't talk about the naming of it. It doesn't talk about how many radar sensors. It talks about this technology will be that second set of eyes when I'm not in the car, when my son or daughter is driving down the road. How are you taking the campaign out to the public? So it's, it's a, lot, a lot of it is social media, quite frankly, which most campaigns are these days. And we're getting huge very, very positive reaction. And we've got, I think, seven or eight different personas that are out there. And, we're, and, and, we're, and the other interesting thing is we're asking our employees to come forward with stories. So it's very real. Um, and it, it was you know, not so long ago we announced it, and I talked about it when I was in Washington, D.C. during the um, ITS Americas conference. And it was interesting. I landed in Washington, D.C., and as I landed, I get a call from my daughter who was just sideswiped um, it, while going down University Drive by, um, by Oakland University. Fortunately, she was okay. It just took the mirror off. This person sideswiped her and kept going. And it was just, it was literally right before I was getting ready to go on stage. And I thought, what a great example of where this technology with blind spot warning can save lives. Yeah. Does Conti have a public recognition advantage? Because you have many millions of tire loyalists out there who have bought your, unlike some suppliers that, you know, you really don't have any connection to them if you're a consumer. Yeah, I mean, Conti is not a brand or Continental is not a brand which people go to the dealer and demand, I want to have Continental ADAS, you know, radar sensors on my vehicle. The only thing that we have is branding of tires. And I don't, quite frankly, as much as I'd love to see it, Conti inside, I don't think it'll ever happen, mm. all right? Um, but I think what we want to do is forget whose brand is on the, we want to take the safety technologies to be more recognized and understand the safety benefits. Mm. Because I come back to the, to the st study that we did, it was the mobility study, right? That 2013 to 2018 study where literally in 2013, 50% of the drivers or, or, or the respondents said, I'm not sure that I trust this technology with automated driving. 2018, it was 77% of the people said they're not comfortable. So it got in, worse. In the reliability, it got, it got worse. worse. 77%. So mm. to us, it was a wake-up call that we got to do something different. Yeah. People, I think when the data's out there, it's clear. But people mm. don't understand it. And so we've taken that as one of a kind of a four-pillar a four approach is education. Um, there's this whole talk about the move to autonomy, and we're going to get there someday, no question about it, full autonomy. But there's steps along the way, you know, and uh, we're probably, at, they would call a level two or a level three system right now. Is that working for you as a supplier? I mean, can you make money on this technology? Because I got to believe, even though you're investing heavily in level four or five, mm -hmm. full uh, autonomy, there's no money to be made there yet. 
we can make money because we're a component supplier. And many of those sensors that I talked about, the radar and the LIDAR and all the camera technology, that's used for the functionality that's in the market today and growing as we talked about those five core. The long-term level four, level five, it's going to be many of the same sensors, maybe more of them, with significant enhancement in software and probably some V2X technology that will help as well. But we see the, this, this in, in kind of a duality, right? You've got the privately owned automated driving vehicles that are working towards full autonomous driving. We see that as a building block approach, all right? And then in parallel to that, you've got the publicly shared personal or uh, uh, publicly shared mobility, what we call it the cube, the mobility experience where it's a robotaxi, right? And we see that duality and those robotaxis are operating in small but growing geofenced areas and the public or the, the privately owned are operating in, you know, different types of environments and they're really going in parallel and eventually that will become part of this seamless mobility where you'll take your privately owned autonomous driving to get to the city, then you might get into some form of robo-taxi for that last mile and maybe even a bike or something else. So is this so. almost a situation like it was in the gold rush where um, you know, the people selling the picks and the shovels and the jeans actually had, uh, you know, uh, made more money than the gold miners themselves? I don't know that it's, it's <laughs> as much making money as it is. We, we know where our place is, right? We will never build autonomous driving vehicles, right? That's not our place. We are a supplier of, of the, the, the features and functions that go with many of our hardware components, most of the OEMs are going to do the complete system integration. That's why GM has crews. That's why Ford invested in Argo AI. They're doing a lot of that software in-house, and, and that's tremendous investment. Okay. But the hardware itself you know, and, the, and the software functionality that goes with that hardware, we're making money at it. Well, because they all have these cars have lots of radar systems and everything yeah. else, right? Yeah. And we've seen recently, too, really surprised me about you guys getting into the actual infrastructure side with, uh, we've seen some prototype light posts that your German colleagues say are being kind of prototyped in various cities and so forth that have some of the same sensor technology up on the post in kind of a module. It would have cameras, it would have radar, and so it's working with the V2X with mm -hmm. the vehicles, and it's also working in uh, crosswalk situations, traffic light situations. I got to think that's a revenue stream waiting to happen if you get it right. It is. It absolutely is. And it's one of our big focus areas of a new whole business area that we call intelligent transportation systems. And we have an entire group that is talking just about that, and that is cities, right? Mm -hmm. And how do, you, how do you work in that environment? And what can you do in those cities to improve not only congestion and emission issues, but also the safety? And it's a, it's a big area for us because those same radar, the same LIDAR, the same cameras can be installed in those light posts and deployed in intersections. And we've got really four main intersections that we're, you know, we've either got running, like we have one in Walnut Creek, California, that's up and running now. We've got a new one that we're going to be putting in Auburn Hills. We've got one in China. So, you know, we're, we're trying to do it in, in different areas because traffic is different. And so, Mike, oh. <laughs> <laughs> we all want to get in on this. This has got to fall under this new term that I hear all the time, smart cities. Yes. What are smart cities exactly? And, and paint a picture as to the role besides the lampposts and the like that Conti will play in that. So it's, it's a connected city where transportation, whatever the form is, whether it's a pedestrian walking, whether it's a vehicle, whether it's a bike, whether it's a truck, whether it's a train coming, it's all connected. 
and it's connected through the infrastructure as well as the vehicles. And, and ultimately, the pedestrian that is walking across the road that doesn't see a car coming because they're blinded by another vehicle that's in the way, the car will be told, don't go through that intersection because there is a pedestrian coming. That pedestrian, if they're equipped with the right technology, and eventually all cell phones will have it, they'll be warned, stop, you shouldn't be crossing the road. Trucks and cars will interact with each other in a different way, and it's all part of this infrastructure in a smart city to enable safer, more comfortable, and, and less congestion in the city environment. It sounds fantastic, and I, I know it's not super expensive, but um, even with all the value these can bring, you know, who pays for it? In a city like Detroit, they're struggling just to put light bulbs in, in, in you know, light mm-hmm. posts. How do you add on, or who pays for this additional cost, whatever it is? It's a great question, and a lot of cities are piloting these because it, it is expensive. Um, but also a lot of companies are trying to figure that out, too. Who owns the data? What can you do with the data? You know, can you sell the data? How do you monetize the data? And so it's, it's not defined yet exactly how that, that cost is going to be allocated out and who's going to make money at it and where is it just going to be a pure investment. Okay, so for the, the pilot programs you've got going, what kind of data can you get and what can you do with that? Early on, it's, we're, we're learning. All right, the Walnut Creek, it's, it's got cameras, it's got radar, it's got LIDAR, and we're watching traffic flow and we're beginning to use that data with some of our partners because we've got a number of different partners that we've invested in as well. Quantum Innovations is a Singapore base, and Singapore is very heavy into smart cities. And so we've invested heavily in them. So we're working with these partners to, first of all, understand what we can get and begin to understand what we can do with it. And then we'll get to the point of, okay, now that we have this data, here's ideas on how we can monetize this. But it's a big question as we, every city we go to, who's going to own the data? And privacy is an issue as well. Huge issue. You don't want to make it a surveillance thing. That's not the intent. Yeah, yeah. All right. So i got to believe there might be multiple models that no one entity has all access to the data, but... Various ones, including a supplier like you could. I, I think that's the reality, is if people begin to understand that there's so many benefits that you can get from the data, and, and it's not about who owns the data, it's, it's what you do with the data that you get, right? And, and so that's kind of the way we're approaching it, is we want to make the data available, and, and, and those that get the data, it's amazing what you can do with it. With, with services that you can sell, you know, imagine with heads-up displays, you know the person's approaching the intersection, you can start to advertise, and that's something that... Some companies are really interested in. We're afraid that that's going to be a, I don't, I don't want to use the word distraction in a negative way, but people don't want to just drive down the road and see advertisements popping up all the time, right? They want to, we're intending with autonomous driving to make it a more comfortable experience, a more productive experience. That seamless mobility where you can get in your car, you can get on the highway, you can, you know, go to, to a cruising chauffeur, you can get your work done in the vehicle, you get to the city, you get in your robo-taxi, it drives the last mile, you've got valet parking for your car when you get there. It's a very easy commute. Okay, everyone's talking about autonomy. Some people say it's decades away. I would say it's actually already started. Where do you see it? And, and especially I'm asking from a business standpoint. Where does it really start to make sense for, as a business? Well, I, I think to your point, and we absolutely agree, it's really already here to a certain extent, right? And, and I would say at the OEM level, they may not be making much money on it, right? But, but you know, I think by 2025 timeframe, you're going to see a much higher penetration rate of these, mm, I'll say, highly automated Autonomous to me is a bit of a stretch where in all driving situations, every corner of the world, you're driving without a, you know, a steering wheel. That's a bit of a stretch for me right now. But by 2025, you're going to start to see highly automated driving 
in many more vehicles than you do today, then the penetration rates will go up and the consumer confidence by then, just by that building block approach to get there, will be there and we think it's really gonna to start to take off. And, and Jeff, you guys have some uh, tier one competitors, um, Valio, Vianeer, Bosch, ZF, et cetera, that are all kind of trying to get into the same space, working in the same space. And everybody talks, when they talk about data, they talk about the cloud. Will each company have a cloud? Does Conti have a cloud for bringing data into the vehicle? And how is that going to shake out when, when you have so many players man, pulling in data, satellites, GPS, et cetera, other cars, infrastructure? How does that work? We do have a cloud. Um, we have a data lake like most companies, but I don't think that's a differentiator. A data lake. That's yeah. interesting. You know, um, that's not, for us, that's not a differentiator for the company. Yeah. It's, it's what's the most economical way to store and access data is, is, is the winner. And we may not be the best person to do that. I think there's maybe other companies out mm -hmm. there that are better at storing and, and, and seg segregating data. So this could evolve but from where it is this now. This could evolve, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But it's really what you do with the data, mm -hmm. I think, that will differentiate companies, not where you store it. Mm -hmm. But everybody's, of course, trying to understand how much data am I gonna to need to store, what's the cost of storing that data, and looking at the business case. Right, I've gotta ask you a question because it's kind of a pet peeve of mine. You talk about 30 to 35,000 uh, fatalities in the U.S., traffic fatalities. Uh, about a third of them are related to drunk driving. And I know that's a privacy issue, but I know also companies like yours could probably, already probably have it, a solution for this in terms of enabling the vehicle. Is this a controversial thing with the OEMs, because you ask them the same question and they say, we know we could, we could make it so vehicles just won't start or won't drive. Um, it's not something that we actively work on, uh -huh. right? Now we have technology that could be enabled to, to prevent the vehicle from starting. There's a lot of technologies out there. Right. That's, that's an OEM decision. It's already on the shelf, that, right, pretty much. That's, that's an OEM decision. Uh -huh. Do they want to implement that? Yeah. The number's actually 40,000 now, and it's gone up 14% really 14% since, since uh, four years ago. So it's actually going up. Mostly because of yeah. texting, it's distraction? Distraction driving absolutely yeah. is an issue, yeah. 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 But the other one, the other interesting thing is the vulnerable road users. When you look at the, the, the accidents that are occurring in intersections, 2.5 million accidents are occurring at intersections. 6,200 people a year die as vulnerable road users. These are bicycles, you know, pedestrians. Phone zombies. Exactly. And, and, and the interesting thing is, 2009, it was only 3,100. Oh, wow. In 1990, yeah. it was 6,500. So we had this huge dip, and now it's spiking yeah. again. Hmm. And we've got to do something about it. So it's, there's a lot of dynamics, and there's a lot of technology out there. It's how do we get it to the market as fast as possible, economically as possible, and start to save the lives. Hmm. With that, we're going to let you go do that, because we're going to have to wrap up the show right now. But Jeff Clyde, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for Very interesting discussion. Boy, you guys are all over the, the map, and it's going to be fascinating to watch. It's a fun space to be in. Thanks very much. And Lindsay and Drew, thank you guys, too. Thanks, Sean. Really appreciate it. And of course, I always say out there, thank you for tuning in. Underwriting for the production of AutoLine this week has been provided by RSM. Prepare for challenges specific to your business by working with trusted advisors who help turn obstacles into opportunities. Experience the power of being understood. RSM, audit, tax and consulting for the middle market.